Chapter Six of the Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alana Jordan. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter Six. Indian depredations, Wolfinger's disappearance, Stanton returns with supplies furnished by Captain Sutter, Donner wagons separated from train forever, terrible piece of news, forced into shelter at Donner Lake, Donner camp on Prosser Creek. All who managed to get beyond the sink of Ogden's River before midnight of October twelfth reached Geyser Springs without further molestation, but the belated who encamped at the sink were surprised at daylight by the Indians who, while the herders were hurriedly taking a cup of coffee, swooped down and killed twenty-one head of cattle. Among the number were all of Mr. Eddy's stock, except an ox and a cow that would not work together. Maddened by his appalling situation, Eddie called for vengeance on his despoilers, and would have rushed to certain death if the breaking of the lock of his rifle at the start had not stopped him. Sullen and dejected, he cashed the contents of his wagons, and with a meager supply of food in a pack on his back, he and his wife, each carrying a child, set forth to finish the journey on foot. To add to their discomfort, they saw Indians on adjacent hills dancing and gesticulating in savage delight. In relating the above occurrence after the journey was finished, Mr. Eddy declared that no language could portray the desolation and heartsick feeling, nor the physical and mental torture which he and his wife experienced while traveling between the sink of Ogden's River and the Geyser Springs. It was during that trying week that Mr. Wolfinger mysteriously disappeared. At the time, he and Kesseberg, with their wagons, were at the rear of the train, and their wives were walking in advance with other members of the company. When camp was made, those two wagons were not in sight, and after dark the alarmed wives prevailed on friends to go in search of their missing husbands. The searchers shortly found Kesseberg leisurely driving toward camp, he assured them that Wolfinger was not far behind him, so they returned without further search. All night the frantic wife listened for the sound of the coming of her husband, and so poignant was her grief that at break of day William Graves, Jr. and two companions went again in search of Mr. Wolfinger. Five or six miles from camp they came upon his tenantless wagon, with the oxen unhooked and feeding on the trail nearby. Nothing in the wagon had been disturbed, nor did they find any sign of struggle or of Indians. After a diligent search for the missing man, his wagon and team was brought to camp and restored to Mrs. Wolfinger, and she was permitted to believe that her husband had been murdered by Indians and his body carried off. Nevertheless, some suspected Kesseberg of having had a hand in his disappearance, as he knew that Mr. Wolfinger carried a large sum of money on his person. 
Three days later, Reinhardt and Spitzer, who had not been missed, came into camp, and Mrs. Wolfinger was startled to recognize her husband's gun in their possession. They explained that they were in the wagon with Mr. Wolfinger when the Indians rushed upon them, drove them off, killed Wolfinger, and burned the wagon. My father made a note of this conflicting statement to help future investigation of the case. At Geyser Springs, the company cashed valuable goods, among them several large cases of books and other heavy articles belonging to my father. As will be seen later, the load in our family wagon, thus lightened through pity for our oxen, also lessened the severity of an accident which otherwise might have been fatal to Georgia and me. On the 19th of October, near the present site of Wadsworth, Nevada, we met Mr. Stanton returning from Sutter's Fort with two Indian herders driving seven mules laden with flour and jerked beef. Their arrival was hailed with great joy, and after a brief consultation with my father, Stanton and his Indians continued toward the rear in order to distribute the first to those most in need of provisions, also that the pack animals might be the sooner set apart to the use of those whose teams had given out or had been destroyed by Indians. Mr. Stanton had left Mr. McCutcheon sick at Sutter's Fort. He brought information also concerning Mr. Reed and Heron, whom he had met in the Sacramento Valley. At the time of meeting, they were quite a distance from the settlement, had been without food three days, and Mr. Reed's horse was completely worn out. Mr. Stanton had furnished Mr. Reed with a fresh mount, and provisions enough to carry both men to Sutter's Fort. In camp that night, Mr. Stanton outlined our course to the settlement, and in compliance with my father's earnest wish, consented to lead the train across the Sierra Nevada mountains. Frost in the air and snow on the distant peaks warned us against delays, yet, notwithstanding the need of haste, we were obliged to rest our jaded teams. Three yoke of oxen had died from exhaustion within a week, and several of those remaining were not in a condition to ascend the heavy grades before them. On the 20th, Mr. Pike met death in his own tent by the accidental discharge of a six-shooter in the hands of Mr. Foster, his brother-in-law. He left a young wife and two small children, Naomi, three years of age, and Catherine, a babe in arms. His loss was keenly felt by the company, for he was highly esteemed. We broke camp on the 22nd, and my father and uncle took our wagons to the rear of the train in order to favor our cattle, and also to be near families whose teams might help in getting up the mountains. That day we crossed the Truckee River for the 49th and last time in 80 miles, and encamped for the night at the top of a high hill, where we received our last experience of Indian cruelty. The perpetrator was concealed behind a willow, and with savage vim and well-trained hand, sent nineteen arrows whizzing through the air, and each arrow struck a different ox. 
Mr. Eddy caught him in the act, and as he turned to flee, the white man's rifle ball struck him between the shoulders and pierced his body. With a spring into the air and an agonizing shriek, he dropped lifeless into the bushes below. Strange but true, not an ox was seriously hurt. The train took the trail early next morning, expecting to cross the summit of the Sierras and reach California in less than two weeks. The following circumstances, which parted us forever from the train which father had led through so many difficulties, were told me by my sister, Mrs. Elitha C. Wilder, now of Bruceville, California. Our five Donner wagons and Mrs. Wolfinger's wagon were a day or more behind the train, and between twelve and sixteen miles from the spot where we later made our winter camp. When an accident happened, which nearly cost us your life, and indirectly prevented our rejoining the train. Your mother and Frances were walking on ahead. You and Georgia were asleep in the wagon, and father was walking beside it down a steep hill. It had almost reached the base of the incline when the axle to the four wheels broke, and the wagon tipped over on the side, tumbling its contents upon you two children. Father and uncle, in great alarm, rushed to your rescue. Georgia was soon hauled out safely through the opening in the back of the wagon sheets, but you were nowhere in sight, and father was sure you were smothering because you did not answer his call. They worked breathlessly getting things out, and finally uncle came to your limp form. You could not have lasted much longer, they said. How thankful we all were that our heaviest boxes had been cached at Geyser Springs. Much as we felt the shock, there was little time for self-indulgence. Never were moments of greater importance. For while father and uncle were hewing a new axle, two men came from the head of the company to tell about the snow. It was a terrible piece of news. Those men reported that on the 28th of that month, the larger part of the train had reached a deserted cabin near Truckee Lake, the sheet of water now known as Donner Lake, at the foot of Fremont's Pass in the main chain of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. The following morning they had proceeded to within three miles of the summit, but finding snow there, five feet in depth, the trail obliterated, and no place for making camp, they were obliged to return to the spot they had left early in the day. There, they said, the company had assembled to discuss the next move, and great confusion prevailed as the excited members gave voice to their bitterest fears. Some proposed to abandon the wagons and make the oxen carry out the children and provisions. Some wanted to take the children and rations and start out on foot, and some sat brooding in day's silence through the long night. The messengers further stated that on the 30th, with Stanton as leader, and despite the falling sleet and snow, the forward section of the party united in another desperate effort to cross the summit, but encountered deeper drifts and greater difficulties. As darkness crept over the whitened waste, wagons became separated and lodged in the snow, and all had to cling to the mountainside until break of day when the train again returned to its twice-abandoned camp, having been compelled, however, to leave several of the wagons where they had become stalled. The report concluded 
with the statement that the men at once began log-cutting for cabins in which the company might have to pass the winter. After the messengers left, and as father and uncle Jacob were hastening preparations for our own departure, new troubles beset us. Uncle was giving the finishing touches to the axle when the chisel he was using slipped from his grasp, and its keen edge struck and made a serious wound across the back of father's right hand, which was steadying the timber. The crippled hand was carefully dressed, and to quiet uncle's fears and discomfort, father made light of the accident, declaring that they had weightier matters for consideration than cuts and bruises. The consequences of that accident, however, were far more wide-reaching than could have been anticipated. Up and up we toiled until we reached an altitude of 6,000 feet, and were within about 10 miles of our companions at the lake, when the intense cold drove us into camp on Prosser Creek in Alder Creek Valley, a picturesque and sheltered nook two and a half miles in length and three-quarters of a mile in width. But no one observed the picturesque grandeur of the forest-covered mountains which hem it in on the north and west, nor that eastward and southward it looks out across plateaus to the Washoe Mountains twenty miles away. A piercing wind was driving storm clouds toward us, and those who understood their threatening aspect realized that twenty-one persons, eight of them helpless children, were there at the mercy of the pitiless storm king. The teams were hurriedly unhooked, the tents pitched, and the men and women began collecting material for more suitable quarters. Some felled trees, some lopped off branches, and some, with oxen, dragged the logs into position. There was enough building material on the ground for a good-sized foundation four logs deep when night stopped the work. The moon and stars came out before we went to bed, yet the following morning the ground was covered with snow two or three feet in depth, which had to be shoveled from the exposed beds before their occupants could rise. I remember well that new day. All plans for log cabins had to be abandoned. There was no sheltered nook for shivering children, so father lifted Georgia and me onto a log, and mother tucked a buffalo robe around us, saying, Sit here until we have a better place for you. There we sat, snug and dry, chatting and twisting our heads about, watching the hurrying, anxious workers. Those not busy at the wagons were helping the builders to construct a permanent camp. They cleared a space under a tall pine tree and reset the tent a few feet south of its trunk, facing the sunrise. Then, following the Indian method as described by John Baptiste, a rude semicircular hut of poles was added to the tent, the tree trunk forming part of its north wall and its needled boughs the rafters and cross pieces to the roof. The structure was overlaid so far as possible with pieces of cloth, old quilts and buffalo robes, then with boughs and branches of pine and tamarack. A hollow was scooped in the ground near the tree for a fireplace, and an opening in the top served as chimney and ventilator. One opening led into the tent and another served as an outer door. To keep the beds off the wet earth, two rows of short posts were driven along the sides of the tent, and the poles were laid across the tops, thus forming racks to support the pine boughs upon which the beds should be made. 
While this was being done, Elitha, Leanna, and Mrs. Wolfinger were bringing poles and brush with which to strengthen and sheath the tent walls against wind and weather. Even Sister Frances looked tall and helpful as she trudged by with her little loads. The combination of tent and hut was designed for my father and family and Mrs. Wolfinger. The Teamsters, Samuel Shoemaker, Joseph Reinhardt, James Smith, and John Baptiste built their hut in Indian wigwam fashion. Not far from us, across the stream, braced against a log, was reared a mixed structure of brush and tent for use of Uncle Jacob, Aunt Betsy, and William, and Solomon Hook, Aunt Betsy's sons by a former husband, and their five small children, George, Mary, Isaac, Lewis, and Samuel Donner. Before we two could leave our perch, the snow was falling faster and in larger flakes. It made pictures for Georgia and me upon the branches of big and little trees. It gathered in a ridge beside us upon the log. It nestled in piles upon our buffalo robe. And by the time our quarters were finished, it was veiling Uncle Jacob's from view. Everything within was cold, damp, and dreary, until our tired mother and elder sisters built the fire, prepared our supper, and sent us to bed, each with a lump of low sugar as comforter. End of chapter 6